Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we're going to be talking about Dagon. Yes, in particular, the god, not the story. He's a god? Well, we'll get to that. But before we get into that, we have news, big news. It's out. Yes, our campaign, The Two-Headed Serpent, for Pulp Cthulhu, has um, hit the shelves, well, not literally, hit the uh, the virtual, the virtual shelves, shelves yeah. in PDF form this week. Three years of work, finally hatched, slithering its way across the internet. <laughs> yes, so uh, if you haven't heard of this before, this is the, I think, epic, epic is the right word, epic pulp campaign that the three of us wrote for Chaosium. Uh, for Pulp Cthulhu, it is a globe-spanning monstrosity that uh yeah takes place in multiple content continents uh yeah maybe not all of them of this earth takes place over nine chapters and will probably keep you and your gaming group out of mischief for several months yeah plus it comes with some very nice uh one another one thing that's gone down really well in some of the comments online so far um comes with some very nice supplementary pdfs that gather all the handouts and sheets and stats together so a very helpful uh, resource for the keeper at the table the other thing is if you buy the pdf now apparently chaosium will if you buy the book from them at a later stage take the cost of the pdf off uh, your your purchase of the book so you effectively get the pdf free of charge and there's another project that the two of you have worked on, I believe, up for Kickstarter at present? Oh, mm, yes. yes. Yeah, we, we meant to mention this earlier. Uh, there's still time. It's the Kickstarter for a book from Stygian Fox called Fear's Sharp Little Needles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a collection of, I think they're up to 24 now, aren't we? Uh, very short scenarios that are designed to be played in one evening, or at least a one-shot scenario. So three to four hours max. By... A huge raft of different authors that you'll you'll know the names of from across the Cthulhu writers community, and some yeah, some lovely twisted little stuff that's gone in there from what uh, from what I've seen of the blurbs of some of the other uh, the other authors' pitches in there. And that Kickstarter runs until the end of this month, February twenty seventeen. Yes, and it's done very well so far. It's actually been funded uh, well, funded within I think about the first five hours. It's burnt through a lot of stretch goals already. Um, the next stretch goal that's coming up at the time of recording is uh, for a f- uh, an accompanying fiction collection called Puncture Wounds, uh, which I hope I'm going to have a story in, but yeah, that's not guaranteed yet. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, I've submitted one. Then, yeah, there are a few other stretch goals after that. So yeah, uh, yeah keep, keep an eye on it. There's lots of cool stuff to come. Well, I've heard good reports of your fiction, Scott, so I look forward to reading that. (laughs) Oh, shit. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, I have. Uh, So those two things, if you want to go and look them up, were Two-Headed Serpent from Chaosium and Fear's Sharp Little Needles on Kickstarter. And, of course, I shall put links in the show notes once Paul reminds me. (laughs) Well, then, before we move on to the main topic, let's once again return to our Lovecraftian word of the... uh, And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word is 
gods. And now, just looking down the list here, you've given me one that has five different meanings now. This is this is going overkill on some. I cut some out, Matt. Oh boy. Although most of them begin, um, well, at least two of them begin with the preface of ecclesiastical terms, like number one, a supernatural being who is worshipped as the controller of some part of the universe or some aspect of life in the world, or is the personification of some force. Two, another ecclesiastical term, an image, idol, or symbolic representation of such a deity. Three, any person or thing to which excessive attention is given. I definitely know I'm not that. Number four, a man who has qualities regarded as making him superior to other men. Five, theatre, in plural, the gallery of a theatre. Ah, up in the gods, where I oh, believe yeah. you were for uh, The Cursed Child in London. Oh, yes. Harry Potter play. <laughs> the vertigo-inducing that it was. <laughs> yeah, it certainly can be, yeah. So, yes, this isn't a particularly fancy or unusual word. I mean, it doesn't have that slightly grandiloquent quality that uh, you know some of the, the more juicy Lovecraftian adjectives have. But I think it's an interesting one to go into because of the way Lovecraft uses it. Because it opens up all sorts of questions about what actually a god is in Lovecraft stories. And it very much ties in with the theme of this episode where we're, we're kicking off our series of episodes where we look at different Lovecraftian gods and their development and so on. So, yeah, so Lovecraft used this word 187 times. Yeah, as a plural. And then, you know, the singular version, another 92 times. So, yeah. He makes a lot more references to gods than he does to a god singular, which, again, tells you quite a lot about the content of his stories. Hmm. And also remarkable that we know Lovecraft as a great kind of rationalist and uh, non-religious person. I mean, the gods in his stories, I mean, this is something we touched upon in our recent science fiction episode. Most of them seem to be these these vast alien creatures who, because of our, our relationship with mythology, because of the way that we see things greater than ourselves, that mankind has come to see as gods, they are not necessarily in any classical respect divine. But then again... You know, there is that ambiguity. I mean, once you start getting into the Dreamland stories and stories like The Other Gods and maybe even things like The Strange High House and The Mist, then you start getting into creatures that may be more like the gods in mythology. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, Matt, I know, you know, for example, you're, you're quite a Dunstany fan and you've read a lot of his, his you know, the stories that he wrote that inspired mm-hmm. the Dreamland's tales. Do you think that a lot of Lovecraft's use of gods in that respect comes straight out of Dunsany. Elements of it do, but certainly not all of it, because one of the major differences, this is actually something I've been looking at for a project um, at the moment as well, is that Dunsany's gods are more um, more relatable to humans, um, that they have, they're very much humanoid in appearance, just the roles they fulfil are quite fantastical, and they might have called animalistic companions or things that do their bidding but they're never explicitly described as anything other than human so it's almost like the greek or roman pantheon where again they take the appearance of people and this is perhaps one of the reasons why i've always thought nodens in particular is such a a, an odd fit for lovecraft and Mm -hmm. you know doesn't really mesh with his other stories in that you know that description you've just given of dunstany's gods he does seem much more like um a god out of a dunstany story than very uh, much so than anything you'd expect to find in lovecraft yeah he's probably one of the closest examples now let's take a look at how lovecraft used the word gods in some of his writings from the call of cthulhu 
There is a sense of spectral whirling through liquid gulfs of infinity, of dizzying rides through reeling universes on a comet's tail, and of hysterical plunges from the pit to the moon, and from the moon back again to the pit, all livened by a cacinating chorus of the distorted, hilarious elder gods and the green, bat-winged, mocking imps of Tartarus. And from the strange high house in the mist. For as the voice which has come has brought fresh mists from the sea, and from the north fresh lights, so do they say that still other voices will bring more mists and more lights, till perhaps the olden gods whose existence the Hindonian whispers for fear the congregational parson shall hear, may come out of the deep and from unknown Kadath in the cold waste and make their dwelling on that evilly appropriate crag so close to the gentle hills and valleys of quiet, simple fisher folk. And from the dream quest of unknown Kadath. There were in such voyages incalculable local dangers, as well as that shocking final peril which gibbers unmentionably outside the ordered universe, where no dreams reach. That last amorphous blight of nethermost confusion which blasphemes and bubbles at the centre of all infinity, the boundless demon sultan Azathoth, whose name no lips dare speak aloud, and who gnaws hungrily in inconceivable unlighted chambers beyond time amidst the muffled, maddening beating of vile drums and the thin, monotonous whine of accursed flutes, to which detestable pounding and piping dance slowly, awkwardly and absurdly the gigantic ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, tenebrous, mindless other gods whose soul and messenger is the crawling chaos Neathletep. And now let's move on to our main topic, a look at the Lovecraftian deity Dagon. So this was inspired by a previous episode... The Seven Geasses. What number episode was that, Scott? Episode 90. 90, if we you really want to go back and check that one out. We really should have had it as episode 7. but <laughs> <laughs> Yes, if only we thought that far in advance when <laughs> we were starting out the podcast. We don't have that kind of foresight. But, <laughs> but through uh, that episode, looking at that Clark Ashton Smith story, there were so many deities in that story that we kind of figured, you know, how have these individual deities changed from their kind of inspiration through to their use in stories, into their use by other authors. Yeah, I, I think the thing that sort of set that light bulb off, off for us was the use of Atlach Natcher in that story. Mm. The fact that you've got certain things in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook that you're told about Atlach Natcher. Like, you know, it's a female uh, deity that dwells in the dreamlands or between the dreamlands and the real world. None of these things are the case in the original story from which the, the deity comes. He's male there and there's no reference to the dreamlands. I mean, this is something we see time and again, that there are these little hints and elements in, in Lovecraft or Lovecraftian writers like Clark Ashton Smith, which people have picked up, they've elaborated upon, and once we get round to Call of Cthulhu and other role-playing games, there is this canon that is accreted around them that perhaps bears no resemblance to the, the initial intentions. 
And, yeah, I, I think it's quite interesting to be able to go back to different strata of the development and see what these things started out as, see how they were developed, and choose which version of them you want to use in your games. You're not obliged to to use, say, Atlatch Natcher, the way it's written in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook. If you want to go back and use the version in the Seven Gears, do so. So the format that we're developing for this episode is something that we will use in, I think, subsequent ones, where we'll revisit the idea and, and find other Lovecraftian gods to talk about. But in this case, we're starting off, appropriately enough, with the first ever mythos deity in Lovecraft's fiction, the first one that he actually mentioned in one of his early stories, and that is Dagon. Let's begin with a look at the historical origins of Dagon. While Lovecraft made most of his gods up wholesale, he did draw a bit from mythology uh, and used a few, I guess you call them real-world gods, as the basis for his own creations. Uh, Dagon is obviously one of these, and you know, the other examples that come to mind for me at least are Bast and Nodens. And Hypnos. Oh yes, of course, Hypnos, yeah, Greek god. So who was Dagon? I mean, he features in the Bible, right? Yeah, features an awful lot in the Old Testament. But he predates the Bible and by an awful lot. I mean, he comes out of, you know, Assyrian and Mesopotamian cultures, a, a god of uh, the Semitic peoples. It's really interesting digging into the research. I mean, you know, we did quite a lot of reading on the background of, of Dagon for this. And I suppose one of the problems that we hit was there's an awful lot of sp- contradictory information out there there's an awful lot of speculation and misinterpretation about the the root name of dagon yeah um, at one time it, taken to be a fish god and at another time taken to be a um, a god of grain or even a storm god yes yeah yeah and to some extent fertility which again you can tie into grain and seed yes okay. But, I mean, in Lovecraft's time, or at least when he was writing Dagon, the original story, which he wrote in 1917, the common interpretation of Dagon was that he was a fish god. There was a re-evaluation in 1928 uh, where... An academic pointed out uh, that the root of it, uh, the root word, dag, um, had been interpreted because it, in Hebrew it pretty much means small fish. He reckoned that in other languages at the time it actually referred more to grain or possibly to storms. And, and so this reinterpretation of Dagon as, as a, a god of the harvest or a god of grain came about in that respect. To the Philistines, Dagon was... The big cheese, right? He was the big god. Yeah, yeah, he was their chief god. And the Philistines were a people in the Middle East, a group of people who were kind of around between 1500 BC and 500 BC from my um, research. They were uh, conquered and assimilated by other cultures. Um, so that they kind of, as, as, a, as a people, I think they came to an end. Well, sort of, because they occupied what was, you know, what became Palestine. Unless I'm much mistaken, the word Palestine actually comes out of Philistine. So, you know, they, they sort of survived to that extent. The Philistines were very much sort of, um, you know, foes of the Hebrews in the Old Testament. And as a result, you know, we, we tend to see in the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically, a lot of cultural clashes between the Hebrews and the Philistines there. And a lot of these clashes involved Dagon. 
I've always seen Philistine referred to as quite a derogatory term. <laughs> well, mm. yeah, it came to mean something else in later years as someone who does not appreciate the arts. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, I mean, we're, we're specifically referring to, you know, the people here. But yeah, I mean, see, if you take it from the perspective of the Bible, seeing them as the enemy, you can oh, understand yeah. why it's come up mm. as a derogatory comment. Absolutely, yeah. Now, there are some good tales in the Bible about the Philistines and Dagon and so on. Um, the first one being in Judges, uh, where Samson, I was going to say of Herculean strength. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, those are wonderful religious he parallel is, to you. He's is captured by the Philistines. He's, um, he's been kind of tricked by Delilah. He's had his hair cut off uh, and his, his strength taken away. But he's taken back to the, the temple of the Philistines. And, which, um, is, which is a temple of Dagon. Right, yes, the Temple of Dagon, and he's been—he's had his eyes gouged out. It's all the good visceral uh, body horror. He, he prays to God and or Yahweh, and and he gets one last kind of act really um, to to push down the the towers in the temple and and collapse the the Temple of Dagon, mm. which is yeah pretty mm. cool kind of pulp action scene. <laughs> I never thought of describing cutting someone's hair as body horror. I was on, on more about the, the gouging of the eyes, but... I, I, I don't know. I'm, I can see it both ways there. <laughs> that and with shaving as well. Yeah, yeah I'll don't. <laughs> Just don't, don't use the S word around me. Ooh. So clearly he'd like spent all of his luck points by that stage, so he couldn't, you know, in Pulp Cthulhu, he wasn't able to kind of come back from the dead again. And just like, oh, I'll push down the temple then. That's a good kind of going out scene. I mean, also in the Old Testament, the the head of King Saul, you know, is cut off and is fastened up in the Temple of Dagon there. His armour is left through there as well, you know, as as a a sort of last humiliation. But probably the the best one is, um, talking of gaming, this this sounds like it's got the most potential, because it brings in the Ark of the Covenant. They put the Ark of the Covenant, I guess they they captured it, right? They they took it into the the House of Dagon and set it alongside the the, uh, idol of Dagon, the, the the stone carving yeah so it's in the book of samuel and the 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 actual passage reads when the philistines took the ark of god they brought it into the house of dagon and set it by dagon and the next morning they come back and like bits have fallen off dagon bits have actually fallen off the statue i think yeah because uh, there are some depictions of dagon that shows him missing his hands and i think this i think it happens a couple of reference couple of days yeah it happens a couple of times doesn't it like I think it would I'm be pretty sure it does. Yeah. It would be more fitting with the film if it, at least the face had melted off. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also a tradition passed down through rabbis that Goliath, as in the, the story of David and Goliath, uh, was a devotee or a sort of champion of Dagon and actually wore uh, the image of Dagon engraved upon his chest. What does that mean, engraved on his chest? That sounds <laughs> yeah, awesome. It's a yeah, very chiselled physique. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it's it's like uh, you know just carved on his armour or whether you know someone just you know did like scarring and, and yeah. carved it into I like his flesh. Latter, yeah. But yeah. 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 I mean, that's that's a much better image <clears throat> for me. It also really paints him that you're definitely the bad guy. You're going down. I can see that you know in a, in a Hollywood mode like three hundred with some big guy with Dagon on his chest. <laughs> <laughs> And Dagon is used as the name of a couple of cities. I mean, these aren't around anymore, right? I don't believe so. You can't but visit these. You can't get these as your address. Oh, sadly. Yeah, uh, you know, if anyone knows differently, if anyone knows that there are you know still towns out there called Dagon, please let us know because yeah, we we want PO boxes there. <laughs> but um, yeah, there were two two cities in Israel called Beth Dagon. Confusingly, both mentioned in the Book of Joshua. 
And there was another town, you know, uh, north of Jericho, which was just called Dagon. I guess they had different zip codes or something. Beth Dagon <laughs> north, Beth Dagon south. I don't know. Like, uh, but I imagine they still got each other's post the whole time. Yeah, mm. God damn it. These fish heads weren't for me. <laughs> <laughs> Almost doing a trip down memory lane now, back to my university days, because I looked at this uh, back then. In Milton's Paradise Lost, um, there's a, in relation to the Ark of the Covenant, there is a quote from Dagon there. Dagon, his name. Sea monster, upward man, and downward fish. I, I'm just imagining someone reciting this and gesturing like some kind of uh, you know, host on a game show. I was thinking yes. more like airplane uh, cabin crew attendant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Up, upward fish, uh, upward man, downward fish. With the props with doing accompanying and hand signals yeah. there. Like, yeah, <laughs> the wobbling hand is doing down. <laughs> and he's, yeah, and he's a sweep, a nice graceful, graceful sweep for the tail. It's like a merman, but um, weirder. Some of the depictions we see of Dagon, some of them do show him as being a sort of classical merman figure, uh, having exactly that, the, the torso and head of a man and the arms. Maybe not with the hands, but, um, yeah, and the tail of a fish. But there is also that bas-relief that was found by uh, Austin Henry Layard in the 1840s, which, you know, maybe it wasn't Dagon, but it depicts this, this, this man basically wearing a fish on his head. Well, it's like a really big fish, right? So there's yeah. the fish's head on his head and then the rest of the fish kind of trailing down his back like some kind of superhero cape. <laughs> With a huge beard. Yeah. The man has the beard, not the, not the yeah, fish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. Well, so there, there are easier ways to get a bonus die on a track fish. It's really... <laughs> I'm not sure that was necessarily Dagon back then, but with the whole thing of interpreting Dagon as a fish deity, I think that's maybe placed upon it. But, Possibly. you know, it's pretty cool anyway. Hmm. For a game, I think that's some good inspiration right there. And also, what you were saying about the merman, Matt, I can't help thinking now that um, Dagon turns up at the end of Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> uh but we certainly know Lovecraft was familiar with at least the, the biblical uh, version of Dagon and the interpretations there. This obviously led to some degree of inspiration there, that, that fishman aspect. Which leads us quite nicely on to... Dagon in Lovecraft. So we get this really cool story from Lovecraft. It's only like five pages or so. It's really quite short, but it... it you know, as a story, it heralds a lot of his stuff that he'll work on in the future. It yeah, I mean, this really is the first mythos story. Just the right length for me. Zero sleep count. I was Whoa. really impressed myself. <laughs> wow. Okay. So written in 1917, published in The Vagrant in 1919, and then reprinted in Weird Tales in October 1923. This really makes Dagon the original Lovecraftian deity. He brings it into this story, he makes mention of it, I mean, hell is the title of the story. And to really cement it in the mythos, obviously, you know, he appears later in The Shadow of Rinsmith, which we'll get to in a moment. Is arguable as to whether we see Dagon himself. Yeah, I was asking myself that last night, because one assumes, I mean, this guy kind of lands on an island in the Pacific, he's kind of delirious, and, uh, you know, he's all on his own, and... He sees this sort of black monolith, much like the one in 2001. It could almost be interpreted, but it's got carvings and stuff on it. And then this figure appears, doesn't it? And we kind of assume that's Dagon. 
mean, is it Dagon? But the, the, the carvings on the statue kind of... Let me actually read the section that describes this monolith. Or at least describes the carvings on the monolith. They were damnably human in general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seem to have been chiselled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. So we're getting the whole image there of this god worshipped by all these kind of sea people, you know, we're getting the whole heralding of um, Shadow of Rinsmith there with the Deep Ones and Cthulhu and so on. Well, except we're getting something else here as well. We, we're getting... I mean, this isn't just a single thing. We're getting they. Now, I mean, he talks about how the figures are out of uh, proportion with their background. He describes one as being large enough to hunt a whale. Now, the implication there could be that the others were the same size, or it could be that this was a monstrous form of them. It's pretty ambiguous. And certainly, when Lovecraft comes back and revisits this in The Shadow of Rinsmith, we get two such deities there. We get Father Dagon and Mother Hydra, his female counterpart. And there's, I suppose for me, the implication that they could be, you know, two out of a whole lineage of these monstrous forms. Mm. I suppose it does lead to the question, though, is that um, artwork that you see completely to scale and completely representative? The thing that was going through my head are things like cave paintings, for example. Mm. They're never to scale. You see people like stick figures next to... Uh, bison or other animals they would hunt down and there's not that much difference in size again that maybe this is a red herring to some degree or maybe it's been read a little bit over into yeah we see the same thing with egyptian hieroglyphs and so on it's not necessarily we can't necessarily take it um that that that, that is to scale well except when the thing comes out of the water our narrator describes it uh he describes it as Vast, polyphemus-like and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. But are you sure he didn't go mad beforehand? Because you know that might be a hint. Yeah, but... The use of the words vast and gigantic there seem to indicate that what he's seeing there is of a similar size to the things that, that he's seen depicted there. So there's that little reference to Polyphemus-like, and who who was Polyphemus? He was from Homer's The Odyssey, and he was a giant, he was one of the Cyclops, and he's described as a kind of a man-eating giant figure. So again, you know, Lovecraft would be well aware of this. We can take this as a as a pretty large, monstrous creature, and that's that's pretty much it that we get from the story. If we take that figure to be, you know, Dagon, which I, th- I think we can. So that probably pretty much leads to the classic description of him that you see in Call of Cthulhu, and we'll come back to this a bit later. Of him basically being like a giant deep one, 
Because that description you know, that, that we see on the monolith, that is very, that, that, that description pretty much describes a deep one, but the only difference is size. As I mentioned a moment ago, Dagon reappears as an element, if not a, a direct physical presence, in the shadow of Rinsmith. I mean, this is... Um, this for me is one of Lovecraft's strongest tales, and it's one that we'll definitely cover on the podcast later on. And it describes this town, Innsmouth, by the sea in Massachusetts, where over the course of the previous century, the people there have interbred with these creatures that were brought in by seafarers who went out to the South Sea Islands. These creatures are what we would now call deep ones. Their spawn have taken over the town, and the church there has now fallen, and it's been replaced by this new religious institution, the Esoteric Order of Dagon. Yes, this was set up around the 1840s. Uh, by Obed Marsh, the captain of the uh, the ship that brought the, the Deep Ones back to Innsmouth. And it combined fertility rites, um, Middle Eastern doctrines and, and native tales into a worship of Dagon, Hydra and, uh, and the Deep Ones. And so the esoteric order of Dagon, as the name would imply, worship the deathless father Dagon. They do this by getting the people to repeat these oaths, the oaths of Dagon. The three oaths. Yeah. The character that our narrator encounters, who who gives him this big info dump about all this, is this old drunk by the name of Zadok Allen. He gives some information about the oaths. Well, the fact that they exist and the fact that he was too frightened uh, to take the third oath himself... But at the same time, we never learn in the story really what the oaths involve. And they have been expanded upon, though, in um, either wider fiction or within gaming material. Because I know when I looked this up in the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia last night, it does list what mm. each of the oaths do. Yeah, I think th- I mean, we'll possibly come back to that in the next section. I think that was either Lynn Carter or August Ehrlich who, who expanded upon all that. But it's not really there in Lovecraft. No, no, he's left very much as an open, um, an open mystery to that extent. But Alan also links directly uh, the worship of Dagon there with the Philistine god. <laughs> now, doing a reading from the Shadow of Rinsmith is tricky because Zadok Allen has this very particular vocal style um, that involves a thick Massachusetts accent and being pissed out of his brain. Yeah, and Lovecraft writes it in that manner, doesn't he, with lots of contractions. It's very much the kind of reminiscent of the Dunwich Horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah the kind of the yokel accent. Yeah. Oh, he, he does this in a number of his stories. He, he does it to some extent in uh, The Colour Out of Space as well. Yes, yes. But, um, yeah, I, I, I shall read this. I will not attempt the accent. Apologies. Oh, come on. Oh. I can do drunk, come on. (laughs) Yeah, go get me a bottle of whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) And three minutes. (laughs) Dagon and Ashtoreth, Belial and Beelzebub, Golden Calf and the idols of Canaan and the Philistines, Babylonish abominations. As those who have read the Call of Cthulhu rulebook will know, Father Dagon is mentioned most of the time in the same breath as Mother Hydra. They're both considered unique entities, um, unquote. And Mother Hydra comes from this story. All in the band of the faithful, order Odagon. 
And the children should never die, but go back to mo- the Mother Hydra and Father Dagon. What will we all come from? Yeah, so Mother Hydra doesn't really get a lot of love, does he? Does she in, in these stories? But um, she's just kind of referred to. But yeah, she's always, I think, there in the shadow of Dagon. Even the deep ones seem to be a patriarchal society. <laughs> Oh, you sure she's not the puppet? She's not the one pulling the strings behind the back. Uh, well, the maybe, maybe sending out the husband to do all the dirty work and do all the legwork. Let's move on to the development of Dagon by other writers. Now, having set out to do these episodes about how other writers and the games and so on have changed fundamentally what Lovecraft wrote about, we've perhaps chosen a bad example here, because not too many other writers have taken Dagon and fundamentally changed what he's about. And the stories that do mention him tend to just do that, just kind of throw his name in as a mention. Mm. Yeah, it's always like a plush name drop. It's that They like to talk about the big guy at the top, Cthulhu, and then the small minions at the bottom, the deep ones, but mm. nothing really in the middle, like where Dagon occupies. Well, and also a lot of writers have written stories about deep ones. And so there's you know usually mentions of the worship of Dagon or the esoteric order of Dagon. But there aren't any fundamental reinventions of what that, that deity is. We've certainly seen him used an awful lot um, you know, in that respect by writers like Lynn Carter, August Ehrlich and Brian Lumley. And he appears in The Devil in Iron in the Conan story, Robert E. Howard's 1934 Conan story. Well, sort of. He appears as, uh, the name appears there, but it appears as a city. So this is sort of going back to those oh, okay. biblical things that we were uh, referring to. So, yeah, the, in The Devil in Iron, he's, he's a, he is a place, or at least Dagon is a place. We see name sealing used even by Lovecraft, where he takes Ambrose Pierce's um, Hasta. Is it a place? Is it a god? Is it a person? There's contradictory evidence and instances of it used in in all those guises. But Robert E. Howard does use uh, Dagon as a god a couple of times, or at least there's a mention of his name as a god in some of his stories. But he doesn't really pay, play a... a particularly large part in in Howard's stuff. Uh, I, that said, uh, in the Conan the Destroyer movie, there is that god that turns up towards the end, Dagoth. I, from what I understand, in the original script, the name was something completely different, and they changed it to Dagoth, uh, which sounds a bit like Dagon, and the physical representation of him in there mm, sort of maybe looks a bit Dagonish, but... Oh, yeah, it's, it's ambiguous. Then there's a novel called Dagon by Fred Chappell, uh, written in 1968. I didn't realise that because I've, I've um, got a copy. Scott and I um, began reading... Well, I began reading it. I think you've read the whole thing, right, Scott? Yeah, I finished it earlier this week. Um, I, I spoke to Scott on the phone and I was like, should I wade on with this because Dagon hasn't turned up yet? And Scott's like, well, I'm only 10 pages from the end. And I say, well, does Dagon turn up? And Scott's, no, no. And, and he turns up in the last few pages. Oh! <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's a, a rather different interpretation of him. I, the, the book's really interesting because well, I mean, it's, it draws upon Lovecraft very obliquely. I mean, he references Lovecraft in the you know, inscription at the front. Um, he then 
has this this character, this clergyman character, who is writing a monograph on pagan cults, and uh, he at some point gives a sermon on the subject of Dagon, but it's very much the Philistine deity Dagon. Uh, but he, he encounters characters in it who, though it's never stated explicitly, bear some characteristics of Deep One hybrids. Yeah, that's pretty clearly flagged up, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're definitely, uh, they've got the fishy smell and the, the kind of insmouth yeah. look. Yes. And then finally, at the end, he does have this transformative experience, this transcendental experience, and encounters uh, a vision of Dagon, and the description of it there isn't anything like Lovecraft. It's this sort of small form laid upon an altar. Um, in fact, hang on, let, let's, let's read this out. So this is how Fred Chappell describes Dagon in his novel, Dagon. The god Dagon assumed the altar, reptilian, legless, truncated, scaly wings, flightless, useless. The god Dagon was less than three feet long, fat and rounded like the belly of a crocodile he couldn't see the mouth hidden away under the body but he knew it a wire-like grin like a rattlesnake's double rows of venomous needles in the moor on this side a nictating eye but he thought that on the other side there would be no eye but merely a filmy blind spot an instrument to peer into the marrow of things the visible eye grey, almost white, a body greyish-pink like powdery ashes. Chipped and broken scales covered it, tightly overlapping. It breathed, and this took a long time. The frog-like belly distended, contracted. The reptilian shape was immobile. There was no way for it to move upon the earth. He recognised the god Dagon. An idiot, the god was omnipotent, but did not possess intelligence. Dagon embodied a naked will uncontrollable. The omnipotent god was merely stupid. So it's somewhere between a cross between Azathoth and the merman from Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there certainly are hints of Azathoth there. Hmm. Well, except for the whole thing in, about him being three foot long. <laughs> You never know. Have you gone to the court of Azathoth with a tape measure? <laughs> Not I'm gonna, recently. I'm going to have to read the rest of that now. It sounds pretty cool, actually. I mean, it was, it was quite good at the beginning, but um, another interpretation of Dagon right there? Yeah. yeah. In fact, I, that, that is the only one I've encountered uh, directly that, that really differs drastically from Lovecraft's original description. And that said, I, you know, there are some descriptions in the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia that differ as well. Yeah, there was one that um, put him as a cloud of mist, or a single lidless eye in a bullet-shaped head and translucent skin. It's nice, nice and evocative, but I haven't got a bloody foggiest clue where they come from. Yeah, I, this is you know, one of the difficulties, I suppose, with researching stuff like this from the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia, in that, you know, it gives these these descriptions in there, and at the end it gives references, but it doesn't tie the individual descriptions into the references. So if anyone knows where that particular thing comes from, please do let us know. I know. Uh-oh. He says, he says with a big grin. <laughs> Points for me. Hey, okay, come on, Paul, enlighten us. Brian Lumley. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh dear yeah i read the lumley story dagon's bell uh it's in shadows over 
Innsmouth, collected mythos stories by Stephen Jones. A really cool collection of um, kind of um, deep one stories. Um, but this one is set up in the north of England and kind of out on the moors. A really good inspiration for, for games, actually. And uh, the, the Dagon's bell is um, this, this mysterious bell that they hear ringing, but they can't place where it's coming from. Like a church bell. I, I have read this. I read this like 30 years ago. As, as he and uh, the protagonist kind of drive out towards this old farm where, you know, obviously a young couple have gone to live, uh, unwittingly taken over from uh, some old farmer who, who just went missing. They see before them a, a cloud of mist in the sky and it kind of takes on the shape of, uh, you know, what we would consider to be Dagon, this big kind of humanoid fishy kind of figure. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I'm figuring that's where the cloud of mist comes from. And, you know, we do get the reference to Dagon earlier being a god of storms. So that, that kind of ties in um, with that. What a great story. I mean, you guys would love it. It ends up with, um, with the protagonist going down in these tunnels with dynamite and guns <laughs> and blowing the crap out of it. Uh, okay. he, he played a scenario and then wrote it, didn't he? <laughs> so, um, you know, as far as um, game ability, yeah, Dagon's Bell by Brian Lumley. Scott, you've played Dark Corners of the Earth, right? I think of the I three have. of us, you're the only one that has. Yes, yeah, the Call of Cthulhu video game that came out, oh God, probably about 10 years ago. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, that sort of mashes up elements of the Shadow Out of Time and the Shadow of Rinsmith. And Dagon uh, turns up? And Dagon does actually turn up. Um, yeah, it turns up in person. And, and in, in that video game, he is very much just a giant deep one. I mean, this is the description straight out of the story, Dagon. On the other hand, his physical description in, or depiction rather, in the film Dagon is really quite different. Yeah, that was one thing that I was thinking of when I was rereading the Dagon story last night. There was certain imagery which they took from the story, which I'd completely forgotten for the first time I'd, I'd read it. I mean, this was the first Lovecraftian story I'd read, um, going back easily now 15, 15 years or more. And it was that moment when he he's looking at the hill in the distance and he's trying to get towards it and thinking, well, why isn't he getting any closer? Oh, yeah, because it's bloody big, that's why. That when he finally gets to the top of it, he describes this enormous pit or shaft going down into the, um, into the ground. Mm. The thinking, well, if that was on the bottom of the sea, it would be somewhat reminiscent of that big giant hole that we see at the beginning of Stuart Gordon's Dagon. Yeah, oh. yes. Yeah, yeah. But the Dagon that appears in the film, Dagon, doesn't look like a giant deep one. He's, he's much more of a massive tentacles. Yeah, there's no arms there. Yeah. And finally, it would be remiss not to mention the fact that Dagon lent his name to a, a great Cthulhu mythos and general horror fanzine from the 1980s uh, called Just Dagon. Um yeah, it's it's not been published for a long time, but if you ever get a chance to find issues of it and pick it up, it was for a long time. I mean, despite the fact that it was a you know a little A5 fanzine and you know black and white, it was just one of the best sources for you know horror and mythos related stuff uh, at the time. And the world is a sadder place without it in it. Now we have a look at Dagon in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. So we get game stats for both Dagon and for Mother Hydra. The same. Um, 
the same <laughs> uh, as as vast um, deep ones, basically, kind of twenty foot high, um, big deep ones with thicker armor. They do more damage. Uh, they have more spells and and so on. But interestingly, in both the Call of Cthulhu rulebook and the Malleus Monstorum, Dagon and Hydra are not classified as deities. Yay! Uh, yeah. So, Paul, how do you defend this? <laughs> well, I mean, are they deities? They're worshipped by people. I mean, where do we draw the line, I guess? Well, I mean, Cthulhu. Oh, yeah. Uh, people mm. worship Cthulhu. He's got a massive cult around him. But he's also described as being a priest in, in yeah. the text. Yeah. So, I mean, is Cthulhu a god? I mean, yeah. ultimately, are any of these things gods? I mean, people call them gods. Well, I think in the book, um, Cthulhu is, is referred to as a great old one. Yeah. Um, and great old ones, you know, aren't necessarily gods, um, but can be viewed as such. But this taxonomy is completely arbitrary. This is, you know, a, a human set of terms that are being applied to something that, you know, the human brain cannot even begin to cope with. So, you know, if you it's want... It's kind of hard to write that down, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, very difficult to codify that in a set of rules. Unless you're Abdul Al-Hazred, you know. When he comes out with the role-playing game, maybe he'll encapsulate it, but... He was always shit at stat blocks. <laughs> That's why he got torn apart. Yeah. Well, there is one example, other example I can think of, again, where you almost have a chain of gods forming this kind of, not family tree, but at least pantheon or ranks of superiority, in that you have the outer gods, Shubnigarath, Yogg-Sothoth, Azathoth, blah, 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 and that Neartholotep is subservient to them. So there, you could see that there is at least other potentially steps along the route, like so that Dagon is referred to as a priest, that he was... No, um, no, Cthulhu is referred to as a priest. Ah, but also, yeah. I've seen that also Dagon is interpreted as being the high priest of Cthulhu. Mm. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, so that, again, you've got one worshipping another, which worships something above that, and it's just a chain that goes up and up so and up. So it's basically a pyramid scheme. There you go. I think if we take this whole kind of Lovecraftian Cthulhu mythos pantheon, you know, very much kind of August Derleth kind of bolting everything together and giving, um, you know, Cthulhu a wife and or a better half or whatever, the where, would, where would Dagon? I, I kind of think Dagon would fit quite low in that scheme of things. Yeah. Definitely judging by the look on Scott's face. I was, was going to say the listener can't pick up the kind of the loathing that's just coming <laughs> off that expression at the minute. Personally, I really, really dislike all this hierarchy and family tree and and uh, taxonomy nonsense. I, I know Lovecraft played around with it a little bit in his letters. I mean, it's not really there in the fiction. You know, my understanding, and I could be wrong, you know, if, if people know more about this, please correct me. My understanding was that, you know, when Lovecraft did it in his letters, it was more of a playful thing between friends. I, I don't know. For me, that takes a lot of the, the mystery and the threat and so on out of this. We can reduce these things to labels. I guess what I'm getting at there is we're talking about Dagon in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Mm. Yeah, we could kind of do some teenage nerdy kind of pitching Shubnigarath against, I don't know, Nalathotep using the game rules or something. Um, Two God enter, one man leave. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so, so, basically, but were, so, so basically some kind of Cthulhu war. Yes. <laughs> I mean, who'd be crazy enough to do that, right? Um, yeah, Scott's referring to um, Sandy Peterson's board game Cthulhu Wars there, which is a lot of fun. I it have is. To, um, throw it, it in. really is. Uh, but I think, you know, Dagon 
on a scale to those other entities, whether we call them gods or whatever, and however we kind of um, order them if, if we wish to, I think Dagon as an entity, however we describe him, is kind of quite a way below those, I, I feel. There were a couple of other things I quite liked uh, in the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition rulebook. One was the fact that it did echo that thing from the the story Dagon, that there may be other entities like this other, out there other than, than Hydra and Dagon. Um, and the other was this reference to the beliefs of the Dogon people of Mali. So that's Dogon, D-O-G-O-N. Yes. There's only one letter out. Mm. And yeah, I mean, this isn't something that's been made up. I mean, these are, are real people. Uh, they're still around in Mali, but they've got a, a set of religious and spiritual beliefs that go back a very long time. They, they, they're quite fascinating. I'm not an expert on this, so yeah, again, apologies if I get little details wrong. But they have a belief that you know, there were some, some gods or visitors or spirits that came from the stars, in particular the, you know, the star Sirius, came to Earth. And there, there are these twins, the Nomo twins, who are these sort of fishmen or fish-like like deities uh, who do seem to bear some parallel resemblance to Dagon, who uh, you know, came and, and gave them wisdom and whose, whose return will herald the beginning of a new age. Or near the age of Dagon. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm always a bit reluctant to do this, particularly with a sort of living set of spiritual beliefs, but it is so damn easy just to map the Cthulhu mythos onto that. So in the game setting Cthulhu Invictus, Dagon is also mentioned there, uh, and it refers to him both as a deity of uh, the grain aspect and the, the fish aspect. So we get both of those in... I mean, that's back in the Roman times. Yes. Yeah, so there's there's a reference in there to uh, a temple which has got sort of the public aspect there of the grain deity and has got perhaps a more hidden part of of not just the, the, the classic Philistine, you know, sea uh, god interpretation, but one that is very directly Lovecraftian. And now we take a look at how we can use Dagon in gaming. Now, one thing just occurred to me as we were talking about Dagon, how he's portrayed in the role-playing game, is that, you know, is he a god, isn't he a god, and all these things. Well, he's very much like a big, deep one, but he's also very much like a little Cthulhu. So you could wrong-foot your players by, you know, thinking they're on to... Um, they're on to Dagon, and you know they start tooling up and thinking they're going to go down into the um, into the catacombs and blow up some sea cave where Dagon might manifest, only to find that oh, actually this isn't Dagon. The thing this these people are calling Dagon is actually Cthulhu, or or a starspawn. Yeah, or, or a starspawn. I was, I was thinking yeah. suddenly starspawn. <laughs> yeah. One thing I keep coming back to is the idea that Dagon and Hydra are not unique. The fact that there are lots of other things out here. Sort of had this idea bubbling away in my mind since I started thinking about this, that you could have a game, I mean, this could be Atomic Age Cthulhu all the way through to modern day, where perhaps an element of the US government uh, that remembers the raid on Innsmouth from 1928 and knows that there's still unfinished business. Maybe they realise that, you know, the Deep Ones have come back in different forms and there are other little seaside communities, mini Innsmouths building up. And 
you know, someone gets the bright idea to go out there and try to clean it up at its source. Uh, they've, you know, done enough research, they've learnt about Yohannathlae, they know that there is this great, you know, city out there somewhere uh, down, you know, below the ocean shelf. And, you know, now that it's, it's you know, the, the atomic age, they might be able to create depth charges that will actually go down and really damage Yohannathlae. But they're doing a bit of research first, so the investigators are perhaps caught up in this research. And in the process of doing so, they learn that, uh, you know, about that column that we see, or the, the, the pillar that we see in Dagon, and the implications there that, you know, there is this, this monstrous thing, Dagon, and that there are more of them. They find him described in the literature as being deathless. You know, this could be interpreted as maybe you can't even hurt him. If you're looking at a race of creatures there hidden under the sea that are actually being protected by not just one of these, but an unknown number of them, do you really want to go and pick a fight with them? So you could end up in the weird position of actually trying to defend the Deep Ones against the government just to preserve humanity. Oh, okay. Yeah, because, I mean, you get the impression that Deep Ones in the game are something that, you know, with a machine gunner and shotgun and so on, you can kind of take them on, given their game stats. Um, But Dagon, yeah, that's a bit different. Yeah, and that's one day gone. And most people are going to, most players who are versed in the game background are going to think, yeah, it's just one day gone, not a bunch of them. Over Christmas, one of the things that came up, we were ended up watching a documentary, um, but it came up about the Malaysian Airlines flight that went missing um, a couple of years back, I think it was now. And the, I mentioned to my wife, there was that really impressive graphic that uh, was put up online that showed a comparison of just exactly how far down they thought this plane had got um, had gone or the wreckage of it had gone down if it was that far down and if these creatures were that big then what we think of as a city might not be the proportion that we're thinking of this could mm. be monumentally huge almost the mountains of madness style uh, style huge down there because some some of the ocean especially around the indian ocean the, uh, the central atlantic is that deep you could hide something like that down what, like there. a couple of miles we're talking well, four nearly four miles down wow oh more than that i mean yeah, yeah. uh i mean everest is what five miles high mm-hmm. and the the deepest ocean trenches are much deeper than everest is high yeah so think of it being all the way down there the term city might be on a such a huge scale that we we would comprehend that yeah there could be hundreds of uh, as you put it hundreds of dagons down there and that the city isn't as anywhere near as small as they think it is and all these um, striving to get, you know, diving vehicles so we can go ever deeper, you know. Yeah. Where's, where's the good in that, eh? Grace Under Pressure showed us the bad idea there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that sort of actually just triggered another thought in my head. I mean, if Dagon and Hydra are fundamentally just big deep ones, and we know from the shadow of Rinsmith that deep ones are immortal, maybe over time they just keep growing. The Dagon and Hydra represent what Deep Ones grow into, given, you know, eons to actually develop. Mm. In which case, yeah, they, they, there could be plenty more of them down there. But I was thinking about how to use Dagon. I actually ended up taking a page out of Scott's book, because when I was thinking about when do you actually see Dagon, it's pretty much the Deep Ones are the main buffer between humanity and Dagon. And likewise, then, Dagon is the buffer between Deep Ones and Cthulhu. That 
the best way you're going to get use out of it or exposure to it is if you play a game where the player characters are deep ones. So, like taking a time and tide aspect to this. Um, time and Tide, I'm sure we have mentioned it on a previous episode, but it was a series or cycle of scenarios that Scott wrote where pretty much that was it. It was the PCs are deep ones, but it shows... It, well, it was a mixture. Uh, you know, it was some human, some deep ones, but it was about the sort of interactions between human and deep one societies over the course of the 20th century. Yeah, it, sh- it shows they're not really all that bad at the end of it, mm. in some cases. <laughs> or, or at least they're, they're no worse than humans. Yeah. Just, yeah, but that's not saying much. Dif- different colours are bad, yeah. <laughs> But thinking of a Deep One scenario where, say, you are playing Deep Ones in this, that the way I interpret it is what happens, as you say, you've got Deep Ones that go along coasts and they take human breeding stock, they uh, they perpetuate the existence of the race. What happens if that's actually diluting what it is to be a Deep One? And the kind of the true Deep One, the original source material, is the likes of Dagon and these larger Deep One creatures that slowly as they've started to interbreed or as as there's been problems, that they have almost devolved to what we know as Deep Ones now and that this could spark a religious conflict, it could spark a racial conflict and you then got lines being drawn and it becomes a social drama as well as a conflict. Yeah, and that that's almost goes back to the source material to some extent because, you know, The Shadow of Rinsmith is fun- fundamentally comes out of Lovecraft's fear of miscegenation, of, of, of race mixing. Yeah, we, we, we look at that very much from the human aspect of, you know, seeing humans as being corrupted by, by the Deep Ones. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see that working both ways there. <laughs> Because, you know, they're, they're hybrids. You're creating something that, you know, new out of mm. the two of them. And also, you know, one thing that just occurred to me as you were you know, talking about that, which is if there's this religious aspect to it as well, if there's the sort of fundamentalists in amongst the, the deep ones, what happens if they start worrying about the, the worship of Dagon starting to spread to humans? Because obviously humans are already worshipping Cthulhu, but Dagon seems to be largely worshipped by, uh, by deep ones. You know, would they start seeing that as an affront, a blasphemy, if humans started worshipping their god? I thought you had another idea as well, Matt, about, you know, like locations in London that you could have, like a hidden sort of uh, lane that you could only get to through like a back of a pub or something called <laughs> Dagon Alley. <laughs> I, I did, I did say, say Dagon Alley at one point, yes. I'm sure there should be an eye in there somewhere. But. Kind of Harry Potter, Deep One, Cthulhu mashup. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Well, I mentioned earlier about the, the tricking of players to think that it's Dagon, but it's actually Cthulhu. But there's also the idea that comes through the stories that that maybe, you know, Lovecraft took the idea for Dagon and in his later stories he developed that, that character into Cthulhu. And from that one can theorise that maybe Dagon is almost like an avatar of Cthulhu. Hmm. Um, so, you know, we got Cthulhu, this this big entity that's trapped down in this sunken city of Relay under the Pacific Ocean, and he can't kind of come into our world. But maybe Dagon is some sort of projection or avatar or, or bit of him that he can kind of send forth. If you took that approach, or at least, you know, say that this is something that's been developing over time and it's come to fruition... That could actually have a really nasty consequence because if you 
going back to that that idea of of you know layers or levels of stuff with you know Cthulhu at the top, Dagon in the middle, and then the deep ones down below. That you know, if if the the deep ones are then sort of representations of Dagon, and you you had this this sort of spread throughout all those. What if over time, you know, the the sort of psychic link between uh, first of all, you know, Cthulhu and Dagon grows, but then you know, they, then transmitted through him to all the deep ones. Cthulhu, we already know, when he dreams, his dreams spread out, hit sensitive minds, start driving them mad. But people are largely protected from that by the fact that he is so far under the sea that unless, you know, really rises a bit, then, you know, it doesn't tend to drive people mad. So it happens very occasionally. So what happens if you effectively have this relay network broadcasting his dreams around Mm. the coasts of of countries? Mm. Everyone goes a bit mad. Mm, or at least around the coasts. Mm-hmm. Another idea that occurred to me was a more modern-day take, and this is going back to the idea that, at least in the shadow of Rinsmith, we don't have a very good idea of what the, the Oaths of Dagon actually involve. So I was thinking that rather than going with the, the Lynn Carter, August Ehrlich uh, derivations, that if they... Well... We don't necessarily have to nail down what they do, but you know, maybe they open up your consciousness to Dagon, maybe they connect you somehow with the Deep Ones, with the Sea, with Cthulhu. Whatever it is, that as you go through the three oaths, by the time you hit the third oath, it's going to have a much more, perhaps, psychedelic effect. You don't necessarily know, you know, there may be physical changes or other psychological changes that come further down the line. But initially, you know, it could be something of a rush, a change of consciousness, maybe unsettling, unnerving, certainly challenging. And I was wondering, what would happen if that got out into the modern-day world? And, you know, particularly into internet culture. I was wondering what would happen if, if you know, for example, it got into the hands of 4chan. I was thinking of, you know, internet trolls trying to find different ways of tricking people into the, giving the Oaths of Dagon just because it's going to fuck with their heads. And one idea I had was um, the, the sort of viral video meme going around like the cinnamon challenge or the ice bucket challenge or whatever yeah, yeah. exactly where people you know read you know the, these these weird bits of text aloud and you know, charity yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and you know it, it makes them go a bit loopy on camera and they do funny things maybe they fall over they you know or, or just start speaking in tongues or you know something mm. weird happens and, um, yeah, everyone thinks it's a good laugh. And, you know, once you've done that and it's been caught on film, you challenge someone else to do it. And it just spreads like that. I mean, what happens over time as more and more people start, give, you know, giving the oaths of Dagon all the way to the end? Because Zadok Allen refused to take the third oath, I think. Exactly, right? yeah. I've, I've noted down the three oaths from uh, the Lovecraft uh, Encyclopedia. If, if I just read what hmm. they... I won't, I'll, I'll read them out right now. Um, <laughs> Challenge so the, accepted. The, the first one is a, 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 an oath for all members of the Esoteric Order of Dagon uh, where they'd simply swear to protect the Order. Pretty tame. The second one for devoted members uh, is a promise to aid the Deep Ones. And the third one, the final oath, is that only a few devotees take where one um, has to uh, couple with deep ones and bear children. Uh, and also it notes that it awakens um, the deep one's bloodline. 
in the in the person. So it's kind of doing what you say there, Scott. It's kind of having a an, an effect on the person. So indeed, the third oath is third base. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it, that, that just made me think. I mean, what if yeah, that fundamentally changes something in you, so you only find deep ones sexually attractive from that stage? Wow. Yeah. Oh, you're, and and you suddenly become incredibly attractive to deep ones. I mean, that really is when a trat fish goes wrong. <laughs> the good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we thank the generous souls who have given us money via Patreon. The money that you give us pays for all our running costs, uh, the hosting costs, uh, the bandwidth costs, you know, and, and without that, we just simply wouldn't be able to afford to do the show. So thank you to each and every one of you. Um, and we have some new people to thank. I think, once again, this is probably because we are close, close now, to releasing the Blasphemous Tome. All the writing is done. Uh, we're just, at the time of recording, just uh, sorting through the editing, and then Matt's about to do the layout. We have the artwork, so it is not long until we go to press. So there is probably, at this stage, just time for you to back us if you want to make sure you get the Blasphemous Tome issue too. When you say go to press, you mean kill another printer in your front room. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're getting this one printed professionally this time because it did kill my fucking printer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, the first person on our list today is a big thanks to Alex Moore. So, thank you very much, Alex. Indeed. Cheers, Alex. Well, and thank you very much to the Down Order podcast, um, who are a podcast devoted to the Bolt Action tabletop uh, war game, uh, World War II war game. So thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you very much. Cheers. And also thanks go out to Aaron Eskenazi. So thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. And thanks also to Thomas Powell. Thank you very much, Thomas. Indeed. Thanks, Thomas. Now we come to the $5 backers. Uh, hang on a minute. You said backers, plural. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there are several, but we're only going to do two today because yeah, I think singing to more than you know, two would be... You know, a war crime? Well, It's a sound so. crime, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so if people back us at the $5 level, we, what we call singing to them, I don't know what other people call it, but uh, audio torture. I, I, I prefer to think of it as as experiments in in sonic manipulation audio torture yeah. we are we are crafting sounds we are producing experiences going tone deaf i i, I don't think there's any going involved there. <laughs> <laughs> well the first one goes out to neil stanifer thank you very much neil yes thank you neil and and prepare yourself oh boy Thank you, 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 thank you,
And the next one goes out to Jeff Marshall. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jeff I understand we've had quite a lot of feedback on the previous episode online, Scott? Yes, yeah, the Extremes episode seems to have sparked an awful lot of debate uh, on, on Google Plus in particular, and, and there's some on the uh, the show notes on the website too, but particularly on Google Plus, if you take a look at the Good Friends of Jackson Lies community there, there's been some really quite lively discussion. Cool, I mean, is that because we hit on some contentious subjects? Uh, well, actually, <laughs> everyone I, I loves think, a bit of scatology. Yeah, yeah, you can't go wrong with that. Uh, yeah, it's like finger painting for grown ups. Um, but <laughs> sorry, I've just made myself feel ill there. Um, but yeah, I, I think actually, yeah, considering how much discussion there was, almost all of it was an agreement. I think, you know, most people actually sort of ended up agreeing with, with what we were saying on there. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of nuance and a lot of examples and a lot of interesting analysis about what it meant uh, to, to go to these extremes and what people do and don't want in their games. And yeah, I, I really do recommend taking a look at the thread there and, and just seeing what people said. I mean, Linus Larson in particular wrote some incredibly lengthy posts. No, sorry, that, that sounds a bit pejorative there. I don't mean, you know, like too long. He wrote some very very detailed and very, you know, kind of uh, thoughtful posts. And I really recommend, in particular, going and taking a look at those. You know, the idea of gamers agreeing on something almost universally must be a herald of the end times. Yeah, we'll have to see what we can do about that in upcoming episodes and, you know, just take positions that no one can defend. Yeah, I think Fatal's great. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I don't know that you've got it in you to be contrary and poor. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I always agree with everything you say, Scott. Um, Trevor Hurst um, made an interesting point about... You know, You brought up the topic of sex in games, Scott, and mm. why it doesn't feature as much as violence, which clearly it doesn't. And Trevor Hurst made the point that the competitive aspect of violence is what makes it more acceptable. Violence without competition is cruelty or abuse. And... It is a game, role-playing games. They are games. And, you know, we have boxing matches and we have, you know, competitive uh, fighting sports and so on. And usually when you're fighting someone, you know, I say usually as if we do it a lot, but, you know, when somebody is fighting, you're fighting to win. Yes. Whereas in sexual activities, it's, <laughs> I'm sure there are some competitions, but um, it, it's not normally a competitive uh thing matt's looking wide-eyed <laughs> i just keep thinking year of the sex olympics that's what I'm <laughs> i thought you were thinking oh i've been doing it wrong all this time. <laughs> column a column b <laughs> but I, I, it's interesting though i mean as you were saying that i thought yeah I mean, in the act of sex no but there is an awful lot of competition in terms of your know, courtship and and mating rituals and and romantic rivalries and so on that surround sex is but it I competition guess, though well, I, I mean traditionally 
I guess there is an element of that, and if you start looking at it, it's quite well, an abstracted yeah. form of competition. It, it is, though. yeah, yeah, and it's it, yeah, it's less of sort of you know, I will punch you in the face and more <laughs> sort of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> oh, I don't know, you've, you've, heard, you've heard of Donkey Punch, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> The punching in the face and the slapping of the face does seem, you know, anyway, yes, <laughs> does seem to be a thing. But, um. uh, but no, yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, I agree entirely with what Trevor said there. And I thought that was a really good point about, you know, violence without competition being cruelty. And, and yeah, that, that again is, you know, a, a good way of, of defining that line. Uh, that, you know, if it's against a helpless target, um, then, yeah, it becomes a, a very disturbing thing. So I'm just on, on, the, on the track now that when Matt says his character is going to try and, uh, you know, seduce another character, I'm just going to say, OK, let's roll for initiative. <laughs> <laughs> I'll roll fighting brawl. Yeah. Hard success. <laughs> but, I mean, there are games that sort of get into that... Um, that sort of romantic competition. I mean, uh, some of the stuff that Emily Care Boss has done, for example, uh, she did, uh, oh gosh, Something what Down it? the Moon, Drawing yeah, Down the Moon. Sh- shooting the Moon, Shooting I think. the Moon. Yeah. Which, but they're which, quite which, niche games, aren't they? They're well, not. they are. But, but it's one, uh, you know, I think it's Shooting the Moon that's about romantic triangles mm. and is about that, that competition. I, and it may not be about, you know, sex as competition, but it's certainly about courtship as competition. Certainly, going back to the idea of of you know sex itself in games, yeah, I mean that doesn't really differ you know, than anything else we talked about. But it certainly brings in that idea of of playing through courtship rituals the same way as you might play through a fight in something like D anD. d Now, I think one of our listeners, Steve Dempsey, has spotted something that Scott has been sneaking in for a long time now into the uh, well into the kind of into the fabric of the show that you may not have perceived. There is a, a kind of a a subliminal level to the show that passive listeners may not have heard. Have you have you noticed this, Matt? Has it had an effect I, on you? I was hoping that this wouldn't come up until we'd at least hit the hundred hundredth episode. <laughs> I was really hoping we'd hit that milestone and people wouldn't have noticed. But no. do you want to confess, Scott? I I feel like I should, which is yes. Um, I I I don't know why I did. I think I actually did it by accident first time, and then it became a bit of a tradition, which is just when editing the ID three tags for the MP three file that that gets downloaded. Um, yeah, take take a look at the genre tag. Uh, yes. <laughs> it, it it amused me. So I confess is really an appropriate word to use there, then, isn't it? <laughs> it is. We always welcome suggestions for show uh, themes, and Forrester Greer has come up with one, uh, recommending we look at more contemporary weird fiction authors, such as Thomas Ligotti, Mark Samuels, Reggie Oliver, Stephen J. Clarke, Quentin S. Crisp, and, and others. So um, this is... What do you think, guys? Is this something we could address? Well, I've not yeah. read many of them. But. Well, yeah, I mean, this, uh, when I responded to his post, I mean, that, that was the point I made. There, there are certainly some contemporary weird fiction authors that I think the three of us have discussed how, you know, um, using as show topics in the not-too-distant mm. future. Ligotti right, in so, particular. Yeah, mm. yeah we, we're, we're certainly planning to do something on Ligotti. Uh, Ramsey Campbell, yeah, we're definitely going to cover him at some stage. Oh, and I think we also discussed Laird Barron at some stage as a possible uh, topic. Uh, the others, yeah, I, I mean, I've read some of them. I've read some of their stories, you know, because they, most of the, the authors that Forrest mentioned there are regular contributors to Tartarus Press. 
Uh, and, you know, th- therein, I suppose, lies the rub slightly in that um, the Tartarus Press books are absolutely wonderful. They're also very expensive. So, uh, you know, I, I haven't read quite as my- many of them as, as I'd like. So we'll wait for Matt to buy them and then read them. <laughs> I've got a house to buy. I'm not buying any shit like that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> he says this. Uh, but yes, yeah, I mean, if we can find affordable editions of some of their works, uh, then yeah, I'd certainly be up for discussing them because, yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah, I've read some stuff by, you know, Mark Samuels, Reggie Oliver, Mark Valentine, uh, and yeah, I'd be very happy to talk about their stuff. And wrapping up, what are our final thoughts about Dagon? Or do we find Dagon to be a useful entity to use in our gaming? I think that's, you know, that's what we boil it down to, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think Dagon has been a very underutilised deity. So as we mentioned you know, at the start of the show, he's the original Mythos deity. But he rarely gets more than either you know, a name check, particularly in the form of the esoteric order, or you know, a description in the text of him basically being you know, a large, deep one, uh, yeah, about 20 foot tall, that can wander around and smash stuff. Yeah, he's kind of been sidelined, really. There's a bigger guy than him, and there's lots of littler guys than him who you know, humans can take on. Yeah, he kind of gets, doesn't get enough love. So for that reason, I think I would actually be inspired to, because I, not only because you know, he's not been overused in the way that a lot of other gods have, but also because there is so little canon surrounding him uh that it it makes it easier to branch out without butting up against other people's preconceptions and create something brand new out of him there's always a bigger fish and that's doubly true for mother hydra i mean we won't do an episode about mother hydra because we've said just about all there is about mother hydra in this episode Mm. and she really does just get you know a couple of um just a, a few mentions here and there, nothing more. It's nagging in my head that I, rem- I remember encountering a story at some stage which was written by a female SF author, or certainly a myth author, author which did sort of try to bring Mother Hydra back into more prominence, but I cannot for the life of me think what it might be. Well, we've read quite a lot of mythos stories between us, but if you, as the listener, if you've... Um, got some if you've read some different takes on mother hydra or father dagon then you know please do let us know yeah certainly i don't know about you two but i'm i'm much more interested in dagon as an entity now after this discussion and i think i'm sort of inspired to try to find some new way of using him i com- completely agreed uh, so my my only reservation is that it's you always seem to have interaction with deep one first before you get towards dagon so it'd be nice to do something that breaks out of that mold yeah i mean sort of touching on what we were talking about when when we had the discussion about how we'd use dagon mm-hmm. i one idea there that could be interesting to develop is is how you completely divorce uh the worship of dagon from the deep ones mm. that you know maybe there's a human cult maybe there's something else but, I mean, that would be a great way of wrong-footing people, just having this entirely human uh, cult of Dagon, the same way as you've got the, the human cult of Cthulhu and the Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the big unanswered questions uh, from the least from the original story is as our protagonist is walking across the, um, the exposed ocean floor that's now solidified, he says that there were other horrors cast up from the depths, and that if they're fairly near a temple of Dagon, what might they be? Mm. 
Well, I think that brings our exploration of Dagon to a close. So it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Um, oh, from, that descri- a- from that description, it's more like Dagon's Bel End. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>